In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. In today's Gospel, Jesus has opened his mouth and set before you the most profound wisdom. Now, one aspect of wisdom literature is that its full meaning never really hits you all at once. It plants seeds in your heart that grow this way and that, so that each time you come to the text, you gain new insight and grow ever deeper into the reality that is set before you. It's the kind of teaching that dwells in your heart and continues to give you new insights into the world in which you live. This text, I think, is kind of like that. And so it may be that as you say amen to all these beatitudes, you realize that you still don't yet know the fullness of what Jesus is giving you here. Nevertheless, you know and believe and confess that what Jesus gives to you is good. His word alone is your life, now and into the ages, forever and ever. Amen. Today, Jesus sets before us blessings, or beatitudes, which is just the Latin word for blessed. Now, almost everyone, even with little knowledge of the scriptures, has heard of some aspect of this text. And in these things, you hear the most profound wisdom and the highest goal for every human person. These are the things that Jesus desires for you to have. Comfort, satisfaction, mercy, heaven and earth, the kingdom of God. But if you are honest, you know that you cannot gain these things on your own. Left to your own reason and strength, you will never begin to be the kind of saint that Jesus describes. And so these beatitudes, though beautiful, remain out of reach and unattainable. This life is one of feeble and failing struggles, never measuring up, never quite good enough. Still, you desire these good things. You want what Jesus promises to give you in these Beatitudes. Until you realize that fulfilling them means that you must go through trouble. The way to the good life that Jesus promises is hard. It means suffering Because the way that leads to the good things that Jesus has here is a path through mourning, being hungry, being merciful, being meek, and suffering persecution. These things don't seem at all like blessings. These things are fulfilled in suffering. I mean, who really wants to be poor in spirit? Who wants to mourn? Who wants to hunger and thirst? 
Who wants to be persecuted and reviled and lied about? And now maybe you start to wonder if it's worth it. After all, you know from your own experience that it is far easier to be a peacetaker than a peacemaker. It's easier to strike back than to be meek. It's easier to look within yourself for what you need than to admit that, you could, that your spirit could be in poverty. It's easier to put on a happy face than to admit the possibility of mourning. It's easier to fill and satisfy every fleshly hunger and thirst now than to wait for God to fill you in his own time. And so in this world, it's hard to see how what Jesus describes here is actually good. Because these things are the opposite of the world's notion of success and favor. That is why the wonderful comfort in this text is that these words are not first about you, but about Jesus. And Jesus fulfills each one of them. For Jesus made himself poor in spirit when he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, making himself lower than the angels. He became man, bearing your sin and your shame to the cross. Jesus stood meekly, as he was interrogated under false charges, mocked by soldiers, lifted up on the cross. He suffered want and hunger. He had no place to lay his head. Above all, he hungered and thirsted for the fulfillment of all righteousness, his baptism and death for every sinner in all times and places. When that line of Helpless ones came before him, those sick and dying under the burden of sin, and this line stretched out far, far before him. He was merciful from the depth of his being, and he did not begrudge their neediness. Even as he suffered, he never did so out of spite. His motives were entirely righteous. He set his fate toward Jerusalem because his heart is pure, he goes for the sake of his own love. He goes to the cross to make peace, not only between warring nations, not only between a man and his brother, but between all men and God. He makes peace with his own flesh. He is persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He is hated because he goes to fulfill all righteousness. Every beatitude, start to finish, is entirely about Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law. He does what his word and his will demand. But Jesus does not fulfill these nine beatitudes simply because he is God or by virtue of some superhuman strength, Jesus fulfills these beatitudes 
in his suffering and his dying. In fact, that is the only way that these Beatitudes are fulfilled. It involves suffering. So Jesus goes to that suffering for the joy that is set before him. Isaiah says he is the man of sorrows, full of pain, despised and rejected. This describes Jesus not only during his passion or even throughout his ministry, but this was the life that Jesus knew from the moment of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus knew hunger and thirst, cold and heat, poverty and scorn, threats and persecution, slander and sadness. And if all that were not enough, shameful, bitter death upon the cross. And so St. Bernard correctly calls the life of Jesus one of ever-incessant suffering. You see, this truth is also wrapped up in these Beatitudes. Because you could not fulfill them, Jesus had to suffer in order to fulfill them in your place. He suffered far more profoundly than any trouble or trial you have ever faced or that you will ever know. He was mistreated, scourged, slandered, whipped, mocked, and crucified. But for Jesus, this suffering was worth it because it is the means by which he gains you. By his bitter suffering and death, Jesus has made you his own child and heir. You are baptized into his death, Christ the head, and you, members of his body, his bride, the holy Christian church. You are made one with Jesus forever. But the disciple is not above his master. As it was for the head, so it is for his body. If Jesus knows suffering, then so will you, for you are members in him. That's why Jesus exhorts all would-be followers to deny themselves, renouncing one's honor, one's fame, and even one's own life, taking up the cross daily and following in his way. So see the way that Jesus trod to eternal life. He went the way of suffering, and there is no other way to gain the blessed life. His way must be your way. It means, then, that you may be mocked for confessing the name of Jesus. Christianity isn't as popular today as it once was. The message of the God-man who dies for your sins flies in the face of do-it-yourself religion and spirituality. And confessing the name of Jesus isn't always directly confessing the gospel. Recall how John the Baptist suffered tribulation not for preaching about salvation in Jesus. He was imprisoned and beheaded for preaching against the sixth commandment, against adultery, 
And yet, this preacher of God's law died for Christ. Perhaps you will know this kind of tribulation. Maybe in school you will be maligned for rejecting the religion of evolution. Perhaps you will call, be called hateful or bigoted for showing from God's word that every person needs to repent and that there are sins against God and nature. Maybe you will then realize all this suffering and seek a way to escape it. The world promises a way out. Elect the right politician, embrace the right policy, signal the right virtue, and strife will cease. The world will be healed. The utopia will be established. You see, the world sees no glory in suffering. The world boasts that it can eliminate it. Follow this man or that one, this theory or that one, vote for this political party, adopt that social ideology. We can solve the ills that plague us if we only adopt the right methods. And then there are the false prophets who wear the name of Jesus. And they promise in Jesus' name that you can be free of suffering in this life. They promise health and wealth and worldly success, temporal blessings beyond imagination. But they deny the cross. They deny the reason for Jesus' suffering and death. They deny man's sin. Now, suffering in this life seems scary, and many times it is. But if you seek only peace here and now, then you are going away from Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering. And the way of suffering in this life is the way of the, of the whole church. But Christian suffering is not suffering for its own sake. You don't suffer as though you must gain or earn something by it. Your suffering is made perfect because it is connected to the suffering of Jesus. You see, as it was for Jesus, so it is for you. Everything in the scriptures depends on this one thing. The fact that Jesus got up out of the grave. If Jesus never rose bodily from the dead, then you are still in your sins and you will die the eternal death. If Jesus didn't rise, then he is a fraud and nothing the, the prophets or apostles said about him is worthwhile to believe. But you know that Christ has been raised. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And where the head goes, the body follows. So when he bursts forth from his grave, you follow in his train. You look forward to this reality, but in your life now, the fullness of this resurrection is not yet. Your day-to-day -day life is full of bruises and sores, anger and stealing, temptation and slander, abuse and sorrow. 
And one by one, death steals away your loved ones. And you know that your appointed day also comes. From this world, it seems, the only way out of tribulation is death. And yet this march toward death is not a pleasant one. And you weep when your loved ones die. You know that Christ has conquered death. You believe you will join him in his resurrection. But all you see in this life around you is sin paying out its wages. That's why this vision that St. John has is so comforting. Notice how the angel speaks to John of the great multitude in heaven. From where have they come? From the great tribulation. Now, what is this great tribulation? Maybe you think in terms of those persecuted, those mocked, defamed, tortured, and killed for the name of Christ, the ones you read about in the news. Wherever they may be, they are either from long ago or far away from here. Some modern preachers will tell you that the Great Tribulation is a period of the last seven years before the end of the world when suffering and persecution of Christians increases. But consider what St. John writes. The multitude that he sees encompasses not just those Christians who knew oppression and stoning and sword, nor does this crowd encompass only those who died in a brief period of church history. John's vision encompasses all who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. All those Christ our Lord will gather unto himself. This multitude is the entire universal Christian church. That means that John doesn't see only some Christians. He sees Adam and David and Esther, Noah and Samuel and Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Hannah, Ruth and Peter and Abraham. He sees your loved ones who have died in the faith and your children who have gone before you into heaven. He sees your baptized children, your children and children's children yet unborn. And John sees you. And if John sees the whole Christian church, then that means that all Christian suffering is sanctified in Jesus. It means that your Christian suffering has meaning because you are united with Jesus and his suffering. And it also means if you are united with Christ by faith, that you also fulfill these beatitudes. And in heaven with Christ, you will participate in the reality of their fulfillment. You will be comforted and satisfied. You will inherit the earth. You will receive mercy and see God and will be called sons of God. The future is certain. And yet, certain as it is, The future is not now. We await to see the fulfillment of these things in our own bodies. But notice again what Jesus does not say in his Beatitudes. He does not say, blessed will be, 
but rather blessed are right now, even in the midst of your suffering. You do not need to wait until heaven to receive your Lord's blessing. And notice what else he says is yours now. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Right now, even in your poverty of spirit, even in your lack and your hunger and your mourning and being persecuted for the faith, the Lord does not withhold his kingdom from you. It's the gospel that you sang last Sunday. And whether they take our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, though these all be gone, our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. The kingdom belongs to the Lord's church, the redeemed, the saints. And this kingdom comes to you not at the end of the world, not after you have attained perfect meekness and mercy, but now, even now in your poverty of spirit and in your mourning. The kingdom is here. Jesus is here for you. Again, consider St. John's vision. In heaven, the members of Christ's body that no one can count are no longer weak and poor in spirit and persecuted. The church of Christ has been brought out of the tribulation. She she who once sang feebly and with some discord here on earth now sings in one voice and in perfect harmony. Amen. Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And every blessing in Jesus belongs to her. And so this great mystery brings you comfort now by faith. For faith hopes for that which it does not see, but what it hears So even now, in the midst of your trouble and trials, can you hear their distant triumph song? In the holy name of Jesus. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.